Ong, as I read. Malachi chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says. They may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its fruit may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared. Among the nations. This is God's word. We have a special treat today, uh, a guest preacher, guest speaker, who's known in our community, uh, Pastor Chuck Garriott. Uh, Chuck pastored a, a fine church in Oklahoma City for a number of years before moving here to Washington, D.C. Uh, about 10 years ago now, right? Uh, a good time has passed. 10 years ago to start up a new ministry called Ministry to State, uh, which focuses on walking with and caring for people uh, that are called to government centers, uh, people that work in government. A a wonderful, uh, fruitful ministry that Chuck has been a part of, but also a member of our community uh, where he and his wife, 
Debbie, uh, who was just ushering uh, a second ago, um, have been vital members of this startup church from the very beginning, even hosting one of our weekly neighborhood groups that will be going through this video study that we just saw a preview of loving people, caring for them, walking with them, showing hospitality, um, all sorts of personal ministry that they have been a part of together. And we're so grateful uh, for both of you. Uh, But it's Chuck this time who will be up here uh, ministering to us and preaching. So let's welcome him. Yes, let me pray for you. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Let me pray for Chuck and his ministry. Jesus, we thank you for all that you are and all that you promise to be for us as a church and for our brother Chuck now. We pray our blessing upon him that he would be able to preach and teach with clarity, conviction, and with the power of your Holy Spirit. So please come now and bless not only his part, but our part, that we would hear from you well with humble hearts, with open hearts and readiness to let you do your work in us and in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's welcome Chuck together. Well, it's an honor to be here, and uh, Duke, thank you for your kind words. Uh, A bit of my work is to travel, which means I'm in and out of airports quite a bit, and this past week uh, I was um, sitting in an airport where the plane that we were to take was having mechanical problems. And you've all been in these situations where, you know, they tell you, oh, it's going to be another 15 minutes, another half an hour, then it turns into another hour, et cetera. So there's this lady sitting next to me in the waiting area, and she was really irate. And so she got the airline on the, on the phone, and she began to express her displeasure for the fact that this was like the second time within the trip and she's got four or five kids and they're all blah blah you know she kind of went on and on and on and so as you sit there you say to yourself okay I think I'll just sit somewhere else why because okay you know that the circumstances aren't good but do you really want to be in the midst of a conversation where somebody is really mad and angry and very displeased with the service that they are not receiving this passage in front of you tastes sounds feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? I mean, it, except it's not us, but it's God who is expressing his displeasure with his people. And so he begins there in the passage, as Duke has read, he says, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, have, how have you loved us? And God is addressing these, dis, these different areas of their lives where they have been complaining and acting as if God is not treating them the way that he should. And I suspect it's true that for all of us here, and I don't pretend to know where you are spiritually in every case, but that there are times in our lives where we're somewhat displeased with God and we complain to him. And we perhaps sound a little bit like what is being reflected here in the book of Malachi in this first chapter. And yet, there are some other aspects to it that I think we should see. I also realize that when you turn to a book like Malachi, that sometimes you might wonder just how does this passage of Scripture fit into the rest of the Old and the New Testament. So if we can, let's just go back historically and get a bit of a running start so we have the context for the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. 
It is given to us at a time when Israel, when the people of God have gone through a lot. So let's go back to, let's say, the day of David. You're familiar with King David. You know of his kingship. You know that he was considered to be one of the greatest kings. He was the second king of Israel. And he found that there were certain temptations that he didn't do well in. He went into a sexual relationship with Bathsheba. And that child died. But before all that came about, as a way of covering his sin, he murdered her husband. Out of that relationship came Solomon. And Solomon was the second king of Israel. And this is all about 900 years before the birth of Christ, a little bit less now. And Solomon looks like he's going to have a glorious reign. And he does for a long, long time. And he's one of those kings that has an enormous amount of wisdom. And, and he's very attractive in regards to the international community. But he has one problem. He's got not just one too many wives, but he's got like hundreds of wives. And they draw his heart away from God. So by the time he comes to the end of his kingdom and his death, things aren't going so well for Israel And after his death, the kingdom divides into two. And you have a northern kingdom, which is about 11 and a half of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the other one and a half tribes or so, or I guess, um, yeah, one and a half tribes in the south called Judah. And that's the southern kingdom or the kingdom of Judah. So you have those two kingdoms that are going on. And to be honest with you, things aren't going very well. The northern kingdom falls into a tremendous amount of of sin and dishonoring God, and one king after the other disapproves of God's law. And then you find that as a form of judgment, God brings in the Assyrians. Not the Syrians, but the Assyrians that come in and they take over that northern kingdom. The people are dispersed, they intermarry, and they're gone. Those are the people that end up being the Samaritans that we see in the New Testament it's a very, very, very sad time in the history of, of God's people. The southern kingdom goes on for a bit longer. Yet, even within that portion of the people of God, there is a tremendous amount of disobedience and dishonoring of God. And God tells them that he's going to bring in, not the Assyrians, but this time the Babylonians. And they do come. And Nebuchadnezzar comes. And they surround Jerusalem. They eventually tear down the walls and they destroy the gates and they come in and they destroy the temple and they carry uh, many of the articles in the temple to Babylon. And there they find a new home along with some of the people. It is a very, very discouraging time. And Psalm 137 reflects the, the depression, so to speak, that the people of God were experiencing. When the psalmist says, there by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept. When we remembered Zion, our captors asked us for songs of joy. How can we sing songs of joy while in a foreign land? And it was a very dismal time. God had told his people through Jeremiah that they would be there at least some 70 years. And then they would be taken back. They could go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls and the temple and all that had been destroyed and reestablish themselves as the people of God after those 70 years or so of that judgment. And so we read those accounts in books like Nehemiah, etc. 
And now this passage here is some, let's say, 60 years after the people of God have been restored to Jerusalem. And the walls have been built, again, and the temple is there, and they're back into worship. You would think that if you had been, as the people of God, through all those things, you had learned your lesson, you had realized that, no, we, we're going to love God the way that he has instructed us, and we're going to honor God, and we're going to do the things that please him. But instead... They had fallen back into those old ways. And as reflected in this passage, they were dishonoring God. And so we have, in essence, this question being asked, God, why don't you love me? When really the question is, what does it look like for the people of God to love God? And I think there ought to be at least that kind of question that enters our own minds from time to time. What does it look like for Chuck Ariat to love God? What does it look like for you to love God? And maybe this morning you've come here, maybe you've never worshipped here with us before, and you've never been a part of a church for the most part. You're kind of thinking, you're wondering, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to, for me to follow Christ, to know him? And so I'm hoping that this morning, this passage that is in front of us might give us some clue, some understanding of what it looks like for someone to really love God. And there's four basic things I'd like you to think about. The first is, in fact, I'll put them in the form of a question. As you answer these questions, I think it would give you a clue in terms of, of the real sense of your love for God. And the first is this, are you revelatory or non revelatory Are you revelatory? Are you non-revelatory? Here's what I mean. You have formed a very definite world and life view. You have certain beliefs. You have certain perspectives on people and the environment around you, on your world. And whether it be from your family life or your friends or your community or politics or whatever it is, you have formed a very definite world and life view. And you're either revelatory or you're non-revelatory. To be non-revelatory means, in essence, that you are like the Enlightenment. That is, that you look at life and you look at it basically from a central perspective. What you can see and what you can taste and what you can feel or experience, only the things that you can take in with your senses is, in essence, what governs or what dictates what you think, how you live out your life. And much of the world that we live in is non-revelatory. That is, they only think about life from that perspective. So so science is very important, and science is, is not bad, but science, in essence, for that individual, is the total sum, to some degree, of what shapes their world and life view. Non-revelatory. Revelatory are those who say, no, there is truth outside of what I experience, what I can experience with my senses, And that is very important to me. And it's a fairly large portion of the world's population that are revelatory. For example, a a Mormon would be revelatory. Someone who's part of the Islamic faith would be revelatory. The Quran would be speaking to them. And as Christians, we would say that being revelatory is very important because the Old and New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, speak to us in regards to understanding life and understanding Uh, the world around us. And so the people of God here in Malachi's day 
had in a sense become non-revelatory. That is, they were ignoring the word of God. And for us as Christians, the scriptures mean an enormous amount. And sometimes, yes, they're not always what we would like them to be, but they're, but they're important to us because they reveal to us truth. And not just sort of a generic truth, but the truth that comes from God. God has revealed himself and his, and his mind to us. And the Old and New Testament are that. Now, I will admit to you that I have not always been a student of the scriptures. When I first came to Christ, because of my background, not really enjoying school that much, and I came to Christ when I was in high school, I realized that the Bible was important. But I didn't think that it was something that I personally needed to be involved in. So I just didn't read it. And the only time I would spend in the scriptures was when I would be like you are now, in a worship service or maybe in a Bible study. But then I had these friends who kind of taunted me about my resistance to study the scriptures. And the way that they would do it, now they, didn't, they didn't do it on purpose, but, and I don't even think they realized it at the time, but they loved to play games. So here I am, a high school student, I'm hanging out with friends, and maybe we're on some kind of a road trip. And so one of my friends say, hey, uh, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read a passage of scripture. I won't tell you where it is. You tell me where this passage is. Have you ever played those games with your friends? Sat around one evening? You probably don't have those kind of friends. Good. Anyway, it just humiliated me to no end that they were reading passages that I couldn't identify. Or or maybe play this game. I'm going to start reciting passages of scripture that I have memorized. And I'll go as long as I can. And we'll see who can go the longest of of of, of scripture that you've memorized. I didn't have much memorized, so I didn't go very far. And these guys would go on and on and on and on and on. It humiliated me to such an extent that I decided I didn't want to be their friend anymore. And I said, you know what? I'm not worthy to be your friends. I'm just not that, I'm not, I'm not oriented that way. But eventually, I just felt convicted. And I felt not just humiliated, but I felt, you know what? I think God's speaking to me through these friends. So I went to seminary. Anyway, you don't need to do that. And I'm still, I still cannot compete with these friends. They're still way, way beyond me. So maybe you struggle somewhat with this aspect that God is speaking to you through his scripture. But you struggle with certain aspects of it because it, well, let me just take you to the second point. If I say I love God, I need to be revelatory. I need to be in his word. I need to listen to him. If I say I love my wife, Debbie, if I don't ever spend time conversing with her and letting her speak to me, it's not much of a relationship. The same thing with God. But the second question I need to ask is this. Am I okay? Am I okay with being corrected? Now, as you can see, the whole chapter and really the whole book is God correcting his people. I can't just show you one little verse here because the entire the entire context is a correction. But I'll be honest with you, I'm not really big on being corrected. Now, I do in my work a limited amount of writing, but I want you to know I don't consider myself to be a writer. I don't. And I'll tell you why. I, I, part of it has to do with my upbringing and my education and my ability to grasp certain things. I 
you know, people talk about having like, oh, I speak two languages or I speak three languages or whatever. I wish I could just speak one language. I mean, I wish I really understood English well enough. But because I do need to write in my work, then I am involved in a lot of writing. And because I uh, don't want to be totally humiliated by whatever people read, I have friends and others who edit my work. And so when I get back their edits, and I've been involved in this one writing project recently, I look at one page of a chapter that I've written, and I say to myself, this looks like a roadmap. I mean, like, there's red, and there's crossing out, and there's notations, and more notations, and more crossing out and changing. I mean, it's like the whole thing has been totally reoriented. Not totally, but it seems that way. It feels that way. And I sit there, and I say to myself, when will I ever get to the point where I can give this editor something that I've done? And she'll say, oh, I have nothing to say about it. But I'm always experiencing this dynamic of being corrected in my English and in my ability or inability to write. So it doesn't feel good. But at the end, when I look at what is there, it's so much better than what I had. And and I, I find that spiritually, that, you know, I don't really enjoy being forced, so to speak, or, or made to feel guilty about things in my life. When I read the scriptures and I, I examine my own heart sometimes, my own mind, my own thoughts, and I see that there's a huge difference between Chuck Ariot's thoughts and the Word of God and what God has said to me. And the people of Israel who had, had found themselves in a very difficult time because they were so disobedient to God, needed to understand that being corrected by God is a great gift. And so do you, are you okay with that? Are you, are you okay with looking at maybe your, your future and, and having certain desires, but yet realizing that maybe there's some idols there and you need to see those idols for what they are. Or maybe there is a relationship that you're in and you've been pursuing it, but you can see that there are certain aspects of that relationship that just aren't healthy. And you know God is speaking to you through his word about that. Or, or maybe it's some other aspect of, of your life or your relationship with the church or those within the church. And you see by the word of God that he's speaking to you in those areas. Are you okay with being corrected. The fourth question, are you okay? Are you okay with being revelatory? Are you okay with being corrected? Uh, What does this look like in terms of loving God? And are you okay with honoring God, with really pursuing honoring him? Verse six, as a son honors his father and a servant his master, If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. You know what it's like to feel honored at times. You you know the concept. Maybe, Maybe you haven't felt that way personally. But you also understand what it looks like for you to honor other people. And you do it in many, many different ways by acknowledging them, by saying things to them that that you know they would appreciate. And maybe at times it's a parent, especially a parent. That's what 
God accents here in this passage. I was recently in a very, I found myself in a very um, difficult circumstance where I really wanted to honor my Lord, honor my father, my, my human father, but but um, it got beyond me. And I'll just tell you quickly what it was like. I, my father and my mom are 85 years of age, so they're getting up there. And my father uh, had or has a farm that the time he developed, and he had lots of equipment and barns and all kinds of things. And over the course of time, as he knew he was getting older, he needed to to let these things go. His children weren't going to be taking possession of these things. And so he had one last thing to get rid of. Out of all the farm equipment, the hail, the, ba- the balers, the tractors, etc., he had one old Massey Ferguson tractor left. And a couple of weeks ago, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to sell it. I'm going to put it on Craigslist. And uh, he said, there's also this shed and some other things that need to be dealt with. Uh, let's meet and so I did, along with my, some of my siblings, and we were going to take care of these last things that uh, represented the old life, so to speak, uh, on this farm. And so he had a buyer coming in about an hour. And there was one section of this one field that I thought, well, let me just take the tractor and go bush hog and cut the grass real quick before this guy comes. It'll only take about 15 minutes. And so I got on the tractor, this old Massey Ferguson built in like 1975, and I started heading up over the hill to where this small area was where I was going to brush hog for 15 minutes then come right back because the new owner was coming in about an hour. And just as I approached the area where I was going to cut, I started smelling smoke. And I, I wondered, where, what's happening here? So I jumped off the tractor and I'm looking, and there is their flames coming out of the engine. And there's nothing around me to deal with the flames, but I'm thinking, oh, it, it's not that big of a deal. I, somehow I can put this fire out. But I had nothing to put it out with. And next thing I know, as the flames on the engine of the fire, of the, of the, of the uh, tractor were growing, they're dropping onto the grass. And this field is just nothing but dry, about a foot of dry grass. And now the fire is spreading, and I'm trying to figure out what to do. There was a house maybe about, a, about 50 yards or so away, and I run to the house, and I try to find some water. There's a bucket, but I can only fill it about halfway. I come back, and now, by the time I get to the tractor, the flames are licking underneath the gas tank of this tractor. And this thing is about to explode, and the feel is going crazy. I mean, like, the fire, the wind is taking it, and it is out of control. I find a shovel. I'm trying to beat this thing out. And now I'm at a point where I can see this thing is out of control. And so what can I do? I mean, I, 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 had, I should have just taken my shirt off and started beating this fire out, but I didn't think about that. And so I, I can only yell now. And so I'm yelling, help, help, as loud as I can. And my, my parents, my father, 85-year-old father, He's too really far away for me to hear. He's about maybe from here to, to uh, the metro station up here at Columbia Heights, right? Imagine standing on the corner here and people there listening to you, right? But that's all I can do is yell, help. Finally, this lady comes out of the one of the house, she's out of one of the homes. She says, do you want me to call 911? Yes, call 911. By the time four fire trucks come, the field is ablaze. The tractor is ablaze. The, the, it, it didn't actually explode, but it expanded the gas tank and it popped. And now, I mean, black smoke is coming 
everywhere, and my father now is driving up to where this fire is. And he gets out of his, he's out of the truck, the pickup truck, and I'm thinking, that was a bad mistake for me to think that I could cut one more little piece of grass, which I should have forgot about. But now his tractor that he had almost sold is just sitting there, singed and, I mean, it was the most humiliating thing. And I thought, you know, I just wanted to do something more, but instead I felt like I had dishonored my father. And then when the, when the, the buyer came a couple minutes later, and you have four fire trucks and a burnt field and a smoldering tractor, he didn't, he didn't take it, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> And you just sort of, you know, you just felt, yeah, you know, I was trying to help my dad, but instead, you know, I kind of messed things up big time. And so anyway, so the point is simply that, you know, there are times where you really do want to, you want to honor, but, you know, for some reason, I just felt like I wanted to do this one little last thing and I should have just forgot about it. I don't know. I, I think there are times in our lives where we don't even think about, am I really honoring or dishonoring God by this thought or again, or by these actions, or by the things that are, that are in front of us. And I think that's, when I look at Malachi, I, I, that's, what, that's the big thing that I'm hearing, that the people of God, the children of God, the, the people of God who have received so much, and he talks about how much he loves them, and instead they're dishonoring him. And that brings us to the last point. How well do we worship him? And I think this is probably the defining part of it all. In this passage, Malachi helps us see the details of how these people were not properly worshiping God, but were offending God in their worship. Now, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, which I know is one of our favorite Old Testament books, right? You just love to read Leviticus, especially if you can't sleep. And all these details of of what God requires in terms of sacrifices and offerings. And you, you read about the details that are given and, and the importance of this to God because he doesn't want just any kind of worship. And I think sometimes we feel like as long as I do something for God, it must be all right. But these people were doing just that. They were doing something. It, refl- it, it, it did reflect a sense of worship, but the, the truth is... It was dishonoring and incredibly offensive to God. Now, to understand why this is so offensive, you go to the book of Hebrews, for example, and you don't need to look at it now, but if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews reminds us of why worship and proper worship, defined worship by God, was so critical for the people of God. And here's what And I'll just paraphrase in terms of the writer of Hebrews says. He says this. He says, the Old Testament worship, that whole system, was in essence a shadow. I'm paraphrasing. It, It was not the reality in itself. When these people here in Malachi's day, post exilic period, were worshiping God and they were offering sacrifices, sacrifices that dealt with their sin or other kinds of issues. Those sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews says, did not take away their sin. It did not deal with their sin. What it was, in essence, was a foreshadow of the reality that was to come. 
All that sacrificial system, all those special days, all that, the temple and this worship, etc., was a means of God saying to his people, there is something coming that is incredibly important. And it's the Messiah. And, and what you're doing now, in essence, is a, is a way of proclaiming this Messiah that's coming, Christ who is coming, the gospel. So that if when you offer a sacrifice... Instead of you complying with what God had said, that is, it should be a male, firstborn, a perfect male. And instead, you bring an animal that is limping, damaged, or whatever the case may be, but it's not considered perfect. You are making a statement about the gospel. You are and saying, in essence, that God is not providing a holy, perfect sacrifice. You are, you are distorting the gospel, in essence. And the, and the writer of Hebrews helps us understand why it was so important for God's people to do what they were instructed to do. It all reflected on what God was going to be doing in the future. And so, God says to his people, it would be better for you to shut the doors and turn the fire down and put it out and just go home than to come and to blaspheme, in essence, to distort the gospel that you would, in essence, say by your actions that when the Holy One comes, he's not holy when he dies on the cross as a perfect lamb of God, he's not really a perfect lamb of God. He's not really who he says he is. It just would be better to close the doors and put the fire out. And so I think when we consider how much do we love God, we have to be asking the question on this side of redemptive history, on this side of the cross, what does it look like for Chuck Garriott or for you to live out your life as someone who is trusting Christ, and yet, as the writer or Paul says in Romans chapter 12, offering your bodies as a living sacrifice and acceptable worship, what does it look like for us to love God that way today? And I think there's lots of things that we could respond. I think one is, as I come into a time of worship, do I come in and I'm, I'm, I have that sort of that consumer mentality you know, why aren't things done my way or, you know, the way that I would like? Or, you know, that song that we sang, gee, do we, you know, I like, I like different music. I like different this. I like different that. And there, are you coming in with that mindset? Or are you coming in so consumed by the fact that you have been loved by God and Christ has died on the cross for you and has, and has given you that perfect sacrifice? Are you, in essence, saying, what are things that I can do to encourage his bride, his people? What are ways in which I can serve in this capacity? What are ways in which I can serve my community and I can serve the world and the concerns around the world because it all belongs to the Lord and I've been called and been given a a very specific period of time to utilize my gifts and ability as a way of, of offering my life to God, not as a way of gaining acceptance to him, but because I have been accepted by him, by the blood of Christ, I now want to 
to love God as he has loved me and only through the gospel and through Christ. Because I'm just I'm going to be just like I was in that field a couple of weeks ago that's burning in the in the tractor that's burning and and four fire engines and firemen running around with hoses etc and it's just it's just a bunch of charred tractors and fields and I mean that's in essence my ability that's what it looks like it's Chuck Garriott. but Christ comes along and he redeems it I got an email from my father yesterday he said, I just want you to know that um, we, we went to our insurance company. And I got twice as much for that tractor from my insurance company as I would have from this guy who decided not to take the tractor. I felt somewhat, oh, well, good. Well, my father got something out of this thing, you know, as opposed to just an old charred tractor in fields. I think that's how the gospel works, right? He, you know, he, he takes this, this very needy situation and he turns it around. And he gives us all kinds of wonderful motivation for wanting to love God all the more. But it's only through Christ that we can do that. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to understand what it means to love you. To really love your word, your revelation that you've given to us, to to be okay with correction, to, to want to honor you, and to certainly worship you. We need your help in all this, and I, I pray that you would enable us. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, today, that is struggling, and they just have felt, why don't you love me, that somehow you would encourage them. And I pray, Father, for those who are just wondering if, if they really want to love you, if you wouldn't work and move in their lives by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.